Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Yes, I am Melissa Canchola. And I get started with the lesson. The lesson is it's called Dealing with Doubt. And this is Dr. Willie Welcome here on Truth Be Told Radio. You have your Bibles open to Exodus 6. And we're looking today at those first nine verses in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 5, we come off one of those low points, a low point where God has begun to act on behalf of his people, and Pharaoh responded negatively. And in his negative response, he increased hardship on the Israelites. The Israelites immediately turned against Moses because of this hardship that was increased against them. And Moses, great leader that he is, turns to God and complains because God hasn't done what he promised to do. So chapter 5 was rather discouraging in terms of the faithfulness and faith of God's people. Now, one would think that if that was the case in chapter 5, we would open to chapter 6, And in chapter 6, we would find another story. And instead, we find same song, second verse. There is more faithlessness. There is more disbelief. There is more moaning and crying against God. Yet in the midst of this, there is a statement that God makes that is crucial in understanding a couple of things. First, it's crucial in understanding why Israel and Moses are wrong in groaning against God. And secondly, it's crucial to understanding how it is that God is going to do what he said he would do and why it is that God is going to do what he said he would do. Now, the fact of the matter is, lest we get on our high horse, what we see in Israel and in Moses in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is the exact same thing we see in ourselves in our everyday lives. Amen, somebody. We do the same thing. There is a promise that we believe, a truth to which we hold. And there's a way that we believe that God ought to do what he has promised to do. And then God doesn't do what we think God ought to do. And two things happen. Number one, we shake our fists at God because he didn't do what we thought he ought to do. And secondly, we act as though God has forgotten how to take care of his business. It's one thing for us to be upset because I had an expectation and things didn't happen in accordance with my expectation. It's another thing to say, God, you've sinned against me. 
which essentially is what we say. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You are wrong. You owed me something, and you didn't give me what you owed me. There was a way to do this. There was a best way to do this, and I know what the best way was to get this done, and you did not do this in the best way to get this done. God, how dare you? Well, I would never speak to God like that, not openly. But that's exactly what Israel is saying to God here. And it's exactly what we have a tendency to say to God in the midst of our frustration. But if we will remember this statement, it will help turn us away from that tendency and towards something that is more true. First, let me read this passage in its entirety. And then we'll look at it more carefully. Let me go back to the last paragraph from last week. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Evil. He, he accuses God of evil. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God, you did evil. How did God do evil? By allowing Pharaoh to do evil. So now God is being blamed for the evil that Pharaoh has done. Never mind the fact that God said, hey, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Oh, by the way, he's going to harden his heart, and he's not going to do what you tell him to do. Now... It happens exactly the way God said it was going to happen, and Moses said, you've done evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's grace, and it's kindness, and it's mercy. I remember when I was a kid, um, my, my, my mother was, um, how, do we, how do we put this? Um, my, my mama didn't play. And I remember as a kid one time in a grocery store, hearing another child say something to their parents. And throw a tantrum and throw something down in a grocery store. I don't know how old I was. I must have been six, seven, eight years old or so because I remember this. And I remember when it happened and the kids yelled at their mother and said whatever it was to their mother and threw that thing down on the ground and I literally ducked just in case his mama was anything like my mama. Because I just thought to myself, if I had done what he just did, I wouldn't make it out of the store. When I read the end of chapter 5 and the way that Moses spoke to God, something in me just wants to duck. Don't you feel that way? 
I mean, I read that and I go, I just, I couldn't imagine having the audacity, the unmitigated gall to say what Moses says to God at the end of chapter 5. He's in trouble. And chapter 6 begins, and God doesn't strike him dead. He doesn't even strike him with leprosy or whatever. He he doesn't even get from God what he got earlier when, you know, in the circumcision passage when, you know, here here it is, and we're trying to figure out, you know, who it is that's about to die, who it is that God is, you know, coming against, about to kill them. But in chapter 6, that doesn't happen. Instead, God moves right along, and he makes a statement. This is the prologue to the statement. And the prologue is, oh, you're about to see what I'm going to do to Moses. After the prologue, he makes a statement. This statement, beginning in verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and then here it is. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There it is. I want you to understand something from this text. I want you to see a picture of where all doubt comes from and how you overcome it. Because I believe that that's what we see in this text. This is a picture of the human condition. This is a picture of why we doubt. And we know where the doubt comes from because we know God's antidote to the doubt. And we'll see that momentarily. After this opening statement, there are a couple of things. First, we see that we doubt because we forget who the Lord is, which is why God begins by reminding Moses and then Israel of who he is. Look at those, verse 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. 
but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is an important statement. It's kind of a complicated statement. But there is a triple reference here in this passage when we look at verses 2 through 9. Three times he says, I am Yahweh. It frames his statement. First, before his statement to Moses, he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And secondly, before the statement that Moses is supposed to make to Israel, he says, I am Yahweh. And at the end of that statement, he says, I am Yahweh. Three times he says it. That's significant. The fact that three times he introduces himself and he uses this particular name for himself. However, there is something a little confusing about the revelation of this name. Because he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty or El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a problem. Why? Number one, because that name is used a hundred times in Genesis. So how is it that God is saying, I didn't make myself known by that name, when the name is used a hundred times in Genesis? Surely he made himself known by that name if it's used a hundred times in Genesis. Not only is it used a hundred times in Genesis, but the name is used by and with the patriarchs. It's used with Abraham, for example. God's statement here is puzzling, Bruce Wells says, since previous biblical texts speak clearly of Abraham's knowledge of the name Yahweh. Abraham uses the name himself, Genesis 15, 2 and 8. And Yahweh declares it to Abraham in Genesis 15:7, where he uses the same phrase, I am Yahweh. So what does God mean when he says to Moses, I did not reveal myself by this name to your forefathers? Because it seems like he did reveal himself by this name to the forefathers. There's two, two ways of solving this problem. One way of solving this problem that I believe is problematic it's what's called the documentary hypothesis. You've probably heard of, you know, JEPD theory and so on and so forth, that there are multiple authors of the Pentateuch, and there are different, actually, not only multiple authors, but there are multiple communities that came together to write the Pentateuch. And you can tell who they are by the way that they refer to God and so on and so forth. And so the argument goes that when this was being written by later communities, whoever it was that wrote Genesis or whatever groups actually wrote Genesis, well, this name had already been revealed to them when they went back and wrote Genesis. And therefore, there's this little hiccup or contradiction when God says, here's where the name was revealed. It's true that it wasn't revealed until the Exodus, but they sort of went back into the Genesis account when they wrote it and just added that name. That's one way to look at it. It's problematic. Why? The Bible says Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Not a group of individuals, not a group of communities. I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, period. He's the author of the Pentateuch. Well, then what do you do with this apparent contradiction? Listen to the way Calvin answers this question. Nor does God, by his name in this passage, mean syllables or letters, but the knowledge of his glory and majesty, which shone out more fully and more brightly in the redemption of his church 
than in the commencement of the covenant. For Abraham and the other patriarchs were content with a smaller measure of light, whence it follows that the fault of their descendants would be less excusable in their faith uh, if their faith was not answerable to the increase of their grace. Meanwhile, Moses is awakened to activity whilst God is setting before him a magnificent and singular means of showing forth his glory. They knew the word Yahweh. They didn't understand the meaning. They didn't understand the meaning of Yahweh. They knew that God said, I am Yahweh. Had no idea what was significant about this name, Yahweh. It was only when God revealed himself specifically and theologically to Moses and explained why this name in particular was significant for him that Moses had a more full-orbed understanding of this term, Yahweh. Listen to Casado when he writes in defining this name. This name means he who is with his creatures and he who is constantly the same. That is, he is true to his word and fulfills his promises. That's what this name means. I am Yahweh, and my action shall be in keeping with my name. A similar interpretation attaches to the phrase, I am Yahweh, wherever it occurs in the Bible. It comes to link the statute or the promise with the attributes of God implied in the name Yahweh, the attributes of one who sees to it that the moral law is observed and fulfills with absolute faithfulness what he promises or what he announces before, beforehand by his prophets. In other words, that name Yahweh means, I am the God who keeps my covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't really understand this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't know who God is. They know nothing about God. God reveals himself to them, and he says, I am God. He establishes a covenant with them, and he makes a promise. They do not understand, however, that his very name means every promise I make, I keep. His very name means I am the one that you can count on because every promise I make, I keep. That his very name is a reflection of his very character as the covenant-keeping God. You see, God wasn't saying, here's the way that you sort of keep me in line as opposed to the other gods. God was saying, I am God, and there is no other God. And my character is such that my very name evokes the righteousness of my moral law. Abraham didn't comprehend that the way that Moses would come to comprehend it. And that's what God means when he says, by this name I didn't make myself known to them. They didn't comprehend this name. And there is a reason that they would not have comprehended this name in Genesis the way it was comprehended in Exodus. Because ultimately, this covenant is about deliverance. It's sort of like a child who grows up in a Christian home. The child grows up in a Christian home and, and, and they hear the name Jesus. And, and they grow up in this home and they, they're, they're catechized and they come to church and they hear songs about Jesus and Jesus, 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 Jesus. And they like the name Jesus and come to love the name Jesus. 
Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And they sing those songs about Jesus, and they learn those truths about Jesus. And yet, one day, their faith is no longer borrowed. Their faith is no longer secondhand. Their faith is no longer their parents' faith, but their faith is their own. And they come to know Jesus and not just the name Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people. It's not until you become one of his saved people that you really understand his name. And basically what God is saying is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, compared to you, Moses, and compared to what I have revealed to you and will continue to reveal to you, compared to you, their children who grew up in a house saying a name that they did not comprehend. However, when I do what I am going to do in, with, through, and for Israel, you will know and understand my name in a way that they never could have. That's what he means. That's what he means. They used the name, but you know the name. Secondly, not only do we doubt, because we do, we doubt, we doubt when we forget who God is. We, we doubt when we somehow, when we somehow don't understand that just by his very nature, God is the one who keeps his promises. We doubt when we just forget the fact that by his very nature, God is sovereign. God is in control. Ultimately, that's what doubt is, is it not? That somehow we believe that there is an area that has fallen through the cracks. Somehow we believe that there is an area that has escaped God's view. Or there's something that has slipped between his fingers. Or that somehow he has forgotten. Or that somehow he has lied. And the only way that we can doubt like that is if we forget who he is. When you know who he is, you know he does not forget things. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. That God is never late, but he's always right on time. When you understand who he is, there is no room for doubt. But beyond knowing who he is, we also doubt because we forget what he has done. Verses 4 and 5 allude to this. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. First, God is reminding Moses of their first meeting. That ought to sound familiar to you. When God first encounters Moses, he says these same words. I've seen, I've heard, I remembered, I've come. He says these same things. So God is reminding Moses of what he has done. Secondly, God is reminding Moses and Israel of his covenant. It's amazing when we talk about covenant, but there's two things that are associated with the idea of covenant, and that is the concept of revelation and redemption. Listen to what our confession says about covenant in chapter 7, paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained 
the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by way of covenant. You can't know God unless he reveals himself to you. Sure, the heavens declare the glory of God, and you look out at the heavens, and you look at the world, and it says to you there is a creator, and you're without excuse. However, you don't know who he is. You don't know his name unless he condescends to you and reveals himself. And the covenant is the means by which God reveals himself. So when he reminds Moses of this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he is saying is, I revealed myself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob in ways that I did not reveal myself to the rest of the world. Not everyone has access to the same revelation. But God reveals himself uniquely to his covenant people. And so first and foremost, he's reminding him of the fact that God revealed himself. And secondly, there's this idea of redemption. Covenant means redemption. God chose Abraham, not the rest of the world. He redeemed Abraham. There are other individuals that could have been redeemed by God for this purpose, but they weren't. Abraham was. Secondly, God turned a barren couple into parents. God did that for his purpose of redemption. Thirdly, he turned a man into a nation. God did that for his own purpose in redemption. And God turned that nation's time of need into their time of deliverance. God does that for Israel. And he reminds Moses of that. God also rebukes Moses and Israel for their doubt. And they need to be rebuked for their doubt. How does he rebuke them? Simply by reminding them of who he is. You've forgotten who I am. Israel says, you made it hard for us. What was wrong with you? You came and you spoke to Pharaoh, and now all of a sudden things are harder for us. Moses turns to God, why have you done evil against these people? Look at what Pharaoh did, the evil that he did to them. How could you do this to them? And God says, um, hold on, son. First of all, I'm God. You seem to have forgotten that, but I'm going to let that one slide. Secondly, I am the God who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Thirdly, I'm the God who promised something to these people. And fourthly, I'm the God who remembered my covenant and came and got you so that my people could be delivered. Or have you forgotten why we started this conversation in the first place? This is a gentle rebuke. It's better than the last one. Amen? This is one of those rebukes where at the end of it you kind of go, I just just got rebuked, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You see, God doesn't owe us anything. And yet... He has revealed himself to us, and he has redeemed us, and he's in the process of redeeming us, regardless of what it is that we're experiencing. We doubt because we don't believe what the Lord has promised. Look at verses 6 through 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. 
and I will bring you out. This is framed by I am the Lord on the beginning and the end. So he's going back to remind them of who I am, that I'm God. By the way, there's no other explanation needed than I am God. Amen? That's kind of like when you, your parents tell you something. You go, why do I, why do I have to do that? Because I told you so. Well, why do I have to do what you tell me? Because I'm your daddy. Well, uh-uh. That's enough. That's enough. I am the Lord. That's enough. He says it at the beginning and the end. But in the middle, again, remember, three times I am the Lord. And in the middle of that, seven promises. Another very important number in the scriptures. Look at those promises. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. What's their worry? You spoke to Pharaoh and our burden got heavier. I'm God. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. When I do it, you'll know I did it. Number six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. I'm not just going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you in. I'm not just going to bring you out and bring you in, but I'm going to bring you out, take you as my own, be your God uniquely, specifically, and bring you into this land that I promised. And how does he end it? I am Yahweh. Why do we doubt? We doubt because we forget who God is. Because if we remembered who God was, there would be no room for doubt. We doubt because we forget what God has done. Because if we remembered what God has done, if we remembered God's covenant, if we remembered God's redemption, again, where would there be room for doubt? And then thirdly, again, we do. We forget what God has promised. We forget that God is not done with us. We forget that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Amen? That there is more ahead. We forget that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and that he will make all things right. We forget that. That's why we doubt, because we forget that. But lest we be flippant. And they go, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, all I have to do is just have those facts. Look at what happens, because they get those facts. And they don't get those facts. They, they, get, they get those facts from God. God says to Moses, I am the Lord. And, and you're going to know me better than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know, knew me. I'm revealing myself and my character to, you, character to you in ways that they couldn't even comprehend. I'm God. You need to know me as God, and you won't doubt. Secondly, you need to remember what I've done. Remember the covenant that I made. I'm the God who made that covenant. 
I'm the one who came and got you. You didn't come and get me, Moses. You were keeping sheep on the other side of the mountain. I came and got you. I made that bush burn. I got your attention. You didn't get mine. Thirdly, tell the people that this is what I'm going to do. And Moses comes down armed with the word of God. And armed with the word of God, the prophet of God speaks to the people of God this powerful word reminding them of who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised. And the people of God respond. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God spoke directly to Moses. And Moses brought that word to the people. Because of their broken spirit and because of their circumstances, they wouldn't believe what Moses said. This heavy burden, this is real. Your promise is not real right now, Moses. Pharaoh, he's real. Your God is not real now, Moses. Your God says he's going to do ABC and XYZ. Pharaoh did what he was going to do. We got no straw, man. This is real. That's pie in the sky stuff. This is real. My pain is real. My heartache is real. My circumstances are real. My frustration is real. My fear is real. And right now, it's more real to me than who you say God is and what you say God has done and what you say God has promised. That's you and me. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's the real Christian life. That's us. And because we don't understand that this is the real Christian life, here's what happens. We get to that place and we think there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with me. Because if there wasn't something wrong with me, I wouldn't respond this way. Listen, same thing is wrong with you that was wrong with them. You're fallen. And living in this world is difficult. Information and rebuke, that's not enough. Granted, we need information. Granted, we need rebuke, but that's not enough. Presence and power of the Spirit of God in our lives, and we need him to act mercifully. And we also need to be reminded. Israel would have to hear this same thing again and again and again and again And again, listen, saints, don't think so much of yourself that you get frustrated because you have to be reminded. That's arrogance. What's the matter, fellow Christian? Oh, I'm just down. Why are you so down, fellow Christian? Well, because something happened in my life and I doubted again. Really, fellow Christian? Because Christians doubt things, yes, but I should be more mature than that by now. I should be at a place in my life where I stop right now. Are you saying, dear Christian, that you should be at a place in your life where you don't need to be reminded again and again and again? Don't say that. First, let me read some things for you. Romans fifteen fifteen. 
But I'm so, on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. First Corinthians 4.17, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. First Corinthians 15.1, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Second Corinthians 10:7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Second Peter 1, 12 and 13. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Second Peter three. Want you no? Let me let me finish it. Uh, 12, Twelve and thirteen. Remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Second Peter three one. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder and finally jude 5 now i want to remind you although you once fully knew it that jesus who saved a people out of the land of egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe reminder 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 why do we need to sit under the ordinary means of grace every week in church because we need to be reminded. Why do we need to be reminded of the gospel? Because we forget faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Why do we need to read the word regularly, pray the word regularly, sing the word regularly, why do we need to come before the Lord's table week in and week out? Because we need to be reminded again and again and again. Because the yoke of your oppression is a constant reminder. And you need the word of God as a constant reminder. Because the difficulties that you face every day are a reminder. And so you need the word of God as a reminder. The hardness of life is a reminder and so you need the preaching of the gospel as a reminder. The disappointment of your sinfulness is a reminder. So you need the majesty of Christ put forth before you again and again and again as a reminder. Christianity is not a class you take and pass. It's your life. It's your breath your health, your strength, your everything, and you must be reminded. I must be reminded because every time difficulty smacks you or me in the face, our natural tendency is not to remember who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised. Our natural tendency is to say, this is too much for me. I just can't believe right now. This is why there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't do this on your own. 
You weren't meant to do this on your own. You're not capable of doing this on your own. You need someone to remind you. You need to remind yourself, and you need to remind somebody else. Amazing things happen when we remind other people of things. This happens all the time. You know, one of the things, you know, as, as pastors, we talk about all the time how, you know, you're sitting and you're dealing with some situation and you're helping someone with some situation and you're looking at these things objectively and you're reminding these people of these things objectively and all of a sudden in the middle of being the objective voice, reminding people of these things, you go, you know, you're doing really good. Is this, which is sometimes while we're talking to you. You're doing really good talking to them. That's awesome, man. Where was all that stuff the other day? When you had your own difficulties and your own doubts. You know what that means? It is a blessing to be part of the body, to have people remind us again and again and again. It is a blessing when we gather as believers to be reminded again and again and again. But it is also a blessing to remind your brothers and sisters in Christ because oftentimes you need to hear those words fall out of your own mouth so that you can remember why the wheels fell off. Why did I say that thing I shouldn't have said? Here's why. I wouldn't hold it under this. Why did I do that thing I shouldn't have done? Here's why. Because I wasn't holding on to this. Why did I act the way I shouldn't have acted? Here's why. Because I wasn't holding on to this. Who is God? What has he done? What has he promised? My prayer for you, for me, for all of us, is that as we walk through the difficulties of our lives, and our lives will be fraught with difficulties, that as we face each one of them, we will ask ourselves, who is God? What has he done? What has he promised? I'm struggling with something right now. It's hurting me. What do I need to do? You need to ask yourself, who is God? What has he done? What has he promised? I got some news that overwhelmed me. How do I face it? You ask yourself, who is God? What has he done? What has he promised? I've got a task in front of me that I have no idea how I can accomplish. What do I do? You ask yourself, who is God? What has he done? And what has he promised? And what happens when that doesn't work? Rinse and repeat. So it's just real easy to get caught up in this idea of this Christianity that makes us invincible. It's really easy to get caught up in this kind of Christianity that never has a bad day, or at least never admits it. It's real easy to get caught up in this Christian. How are you? I'm blessed and highly favored. And never answer the question with, now I'm struggling today. 
problem with getting caught up in that myth of Christianity is that it leaves you nowhere to go in your dark days but to your darkness. You can't admit that you're struggling. You can't ask for help when you're struggling. And you can't get out of your struggle because all you have is your struggle. And the idea that there's something wrong with you because you're a Christian who's in the midst of a struggle. Let that go. Let that go. And rejoice in the fact that God has given you this one day in seven, that he has given you your Bible, that he has given you your brothers and sisters in Christ, and so much more in order to remind you again and again and again and again. Why? Because we need it. We need it. We need to be reminded Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us back to God. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that because we have come to him in repentance and faith, that we are part of the covenant people of God, that we are saved, and that we are in the process of being sanctified, and we will one day be glorified. We need to be reminded that Christ will, he who began a good work in you, is able and faithful to see it through to completion. You need to be reminded of that, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you need to be reminded of that. Because if you're not a Christian, that means you're trusting in something other than the completed work of Christ. And you're failing. And it's failing. And it's not enough for you to just fail. You need to be reminded over and over and over again why you're failing. Because Christ is your only hope. Flee to him, cling to him, trust in him, and nothing else. And don't leave here another week without embracing and walking in that reality. Practice Biblical Dominion. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. We live in a time when many people worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And this leads to people making decisions about the environment with the view that mankind is bad and the earth is basically a god. But that's not how Christians should view things. We understand that God has created mankind in his image and we're the crown of creation, not a cancer. Also, God has given us dominion over creation. It's not supposed to just run wild. We're to subdue and take care of it for our good and God's glory. This world isn't better off without humans. God has designed creation to be cared for by us. So let's practice biblical dominion. God's Word gives us the proper worldview for understanding the world around us. Learn more when you visit us on our website, AnswersRadio.com. Go to AnswersRadio.com. The New Testament is utter horseshit, and you're going to go to heaven when you die. What the are you talking about? Religion which was created by people. What is God? What are you saying? Like, what do you say? You think Jesus came back from the dead? What do you think? You think someone walked on water? It's a structure to make... The idiot, like, have a really 
simple moral path. Christianity, at the end of the day, with no proof, everything is mythology. Would somebody please explain to me what is going on with Joe Rogan? A minute ago, he was furious at God, but recently, have you noticed his tone has radically changed? When did you start becoming religious? So what do you think the Bible is? How would you know that this guy who lived 2,000 plus years ago... That's why he actually is that's why did you find comfort in religion? Did you start reading the Bible? Like what did you do? That is a different guy. That is a man who is asking earnest, genuine, sincere questions, trying to figure out God and the afterlife. Not sure Joe is hearing what he needs to know in order to get saved. So I do have a question for you. If Joe invited you onto his show, and he asked you to tell him why you're religious, what would you say? Well, here are five things you shouldn't say. One, God spoke to me. Two, I had a dream. Three, I felt God's presence. Four, you had a God-shaped hole in your heart. Only Jesus could fill it. Number five, be careful you don't blah, blah, blah with anecdotes and details. I'm not going to name names like, you know, Hulk Hogan. When did you start becoming religious? Well, you know, I kind of like would go to a Southern Baptist church when I was a kid because I, I went to Ballast Point Elementary School in Tampa, and right across the street from Ballast Point was uh, Ballast Point Baptist. And my kids, my kids, my mom, dad, the minor.
Are you confident that these thieves will be brought to justice? Uh, four words, great white throne. Judgment. Don't panic. This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to the Creation Museum, where children can and under visit for free. If you listen to the media, it's time to panic, because we're ruining the Earth, and there's supposedly only a few years left before it's too late. Now, we live in a fallen world, and there are real ecological problems we need to address if we want to be good stewards of creation. But we shouldn't be panicking. Think about this. When I was much younger, people were concerned about global cooling. And then they were concerned about global warming. And now it's just climate change. In other words, the doomsday predictions of the cold Earth didn't come to be, and neither did the predictions the Earth was heating up. The climate prophets, they were all wrong. There's more to discover about proper biblical stewardship and climate change when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Find faith-building answers at AnswersRadio.com. I'd like to begin this session with a question from church history. See if you can identify for me the famous theologian, who was once described by a contemporary who had more authority than he did as a wild pig. Well, by now, obviously, the name has popped into your mind. I'm referring, of course, to Martin Luther. And the one who referred to him as a wild pig was Pope Leo. In the papal bull that excommunicated Luther, the name of the bull was Ex Serge Domine, which is taken from the opening lines of this papal statement that was sent from the Vatican, and the opening words mean this, Rise up, O Lord, defend your cause, or as the Pope goes on to say, there is a wild boar loose in your vineyard. Uh, according to legend, Pope Leo had other things to say about Luther after Luther had posted his 95 theses and it created such a stir throughout Germany and that uh, controversy had spread across Europe and it reached the Vatican and Rome. When it came to the attention of Leo, Leo said, ah, he is a drunken German He'll change his mind when he's sober. And I say that to call attention to the fact that in the 16th century, it was acceptable in theological disputation to discuss matters not in a genteel, polite form of dialogue, but rather in a rather acerbic form of polemical debate. And so if you read the writings of the 16th century on both sides of the controversy, it seems as though these people are ruthless in their attacks upon each other. But even in that crowd of ruthless debate, Martin Luther was in a class by himself. He was so intemperate 
so bombastic, so rude at times that people have even suggested that he suffered from a mental problem. That's what I'd like to consider in this session. The judgment from the perspective of 20th century psychoanalysis is or has been made that Martin Luther was in fact insane. And if you are a Protestant, and that verdict is true, that means the roots of your own religious persuasion could be traced to that of a madman. Now, it's uh, somewhat fascinating to see how historians can think that they can go back into the past and watch the grass growing from a uh, perspective of 2,000 years later. Well, there's no, uh, there's no boundaries to the optimism of certain psychoanalysts who think that they can go back into the pages of history and from a large distance be able to diagnose the psychological state of somebody who lived 400 years ago or 500 years ago or however. And there have been those who have actually come to the conclusion that Martin Luther was crazy, that he was insane. But what I want to ask is this. Why? What would people see in Luther that would provoke them to think perhaps the man was out of his mind? I've mentioned already this extraordinary intemperance of Luther. We read, for example, his uh, famous work on the bondage of the will, which is a response to the sophisticated humanist scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam, where Erasmus had written a work against Luther entitled The Diatribe. And when Luther responded to Erasmus, he would say things like this. He said, Erasmus, you fool, you stupid idiot. He said, why, why is it that I even take the time to, to listen to the flimsy arguments that you give? He said, oh, you, you are eloquent. Your pen is magnificent. He said, but reading the material that you have written, he said, it's just like watching somebody walking down the street carrying gold and silver plates that are filled with dung. That's the way, that's the way Luther would engage in, in uh, theological debate. I won't translate those words into the vernacular, but I think you get the idea. Not only was Luther intemperate in his speech, but he was clearly neurotic, particularly about his health. He was a hypochondriac. He suffered from nervous anxiety and a nervous stomach his whole life, and I can relate to that. He had kidney stones. I can relate to that. He predicted his death six or seven times. Every time Luther got a stomach ache, he was sure it was a fatal disease. And he was always looking over his shoulder, thinking that the hound of heaven was about to pounce on him and visit him with some kind of judgment. And his phobias were many and legendary. And he had such a fear of the wrath of God that early on in his ministry, somebody put this question to him. Brother Martin, do you love God? You know what he said? He said, love God? You asked me if I love God? Love God, sometimes I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to, to evaluate me and to visit affliction upon me. 
Imagine a young man preparing for the ministry, declaring that he goes through periods of hating God. And that hatred was inseparably related to this paralyzing fear that Luther expressed that he had about God. We know that as a young man, his father had plans for Luther to be a distinguished lawyer. And old Hans Luther, who was a coal miner in Germany, saved his money to make it possible for his son to go to the finest law school on the continent. And when Luther became a law student, he distinguished himself very quickly as one of the most brilliant young minds in the field of jurisprudence in all of Europe. But in the midst of that experience, he was coming home one afternoon riding on horseback, when suddenly this storm arose without warning, and Luther found himself trapped on the road in the midst of a violent electrical storm. And the lightning was flashing and the thunder was banging, and suddenly a lightning bolt came and landed so close to his horse that, that, that Luther was thrown from the horse onto the ground, and he had to feel his body to see if he was still alive. And there, what he did in the midst of that narrow escape from death, he cried out, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And he took this narrow brush with death as a divine omen on his life and as a call to the ministry. So he, to his father's everlasting displeasure, he dropped out of law school and enrolled in the monastery and began to take training to become a priest. Now, there are too many people that have that kind of a reaction to a close encounter with lightning. I remember a few years ago at the Western Open outside of Chicago, three prominent members of the professional uh, golf tour were uh, injured by a close bolt of lightning, including Lee Trevino. And they survived this, uh, this difficult experience, and shortly thereafter, Trevino appeared on a talk show, a late-night talk show, and the host said to him, uh, Mr. Trevino, what did you learn from this experience of almost being killed by a lightning bolt? And Trevino smiled, and he said, I learned that when the Almighty wants to play through, you get out of his way. <laughs> and then Trevino went on to quip. He said, I've also learned to take precautions any time that I'm involved in, in a lightning storm now. And the host said, well, what do you do? He said, well, now, if I see lightning, I immediately pull out my one iron and walk down the fairway holding it in the air. And he said, why in the world would you hold a metal stick up in the air? It's like a lightning rod. And he said, no, no, no. He said, even God can't hit a one-er. <laughs> so Trevino responded to his close brush with death from lightning with typical jocularity and flippancy, where Luther was driven to change his entire life, to enter into the monastery, to give up his career not out of a love for God, but out of a phobic preoccupation with the wrath of God. Well, then the day finally came 
where Luther was to be ordained and to celebrate his first mass. And finally, his father and family had somewhat made their peace with their son's uh, precipitous decision, and Hans Luther decided to come and attend the celebration of the first mass that his son is going to perform. And as you know, Luther, Luther had distinguished himself in school as an outstanding scholar and as an outstanding speaker. And so people were waiting in eager anticipation for his presentation and performance of his first Mass. They have to understand this, that in the Roman Catholic Church, in the celebration of the Mass, there, the belief of the Roman Catholic Church is that in the midst of this observation, a divine, supernatural, immediate miracle takes place. <laughs> where during the prayer of consecration that can be offered only by one who has gone through holy orders and has been consecrated as a priest, during the prayer of consecration, the miracle takes place, the miracle that is called transubstantiation, where even though it, the appearance of bread and wine remains the same and no one can discern any observable change in these elements, nevertheless, Rome believes that there is a substantive change, an essential change in these elements that they call transubstantiation, that is, that the substance of the bread and wine are changed into the substance of the very body and blood of Christ, while the accidents, that is, the external perceivable qualities of bread and wine, remain the same. This is the miracle, and Luther had prepared himself in his training for this moment when he would make this prayer over the elements and the divine mystery would take place so that after the consecration happened in the hands of this son of a coal miner would be not bread, not wine, not the common elements from the earth, but nothing less than the holy body and blood of Jesus Christ. So the moment in the Mass came where the prayer would be uttered and everyone waited for Luther to say the, the words of consecration. And he came to that point in the Mass and this one who was so arrogant, so obviously capable of public speaking, he approached that moment and suddenly he froze. He began to tremble, and his mouth opened, and his lips moved, but no words came out. And it's like the people sat in the congregation trying to will the words out of his mouth, and his father was hiding his face in embarrassment that his son couldn't even get through the simple celebration of the Mass that he had memorized a thousand times. Everyone thought he simply forgot the lines. He didn't forget the lines. He finally just mumbled them and rapidly completed the Mass and left the chancel in profound embarrassment. He explained later that it wasn't a mental lapse. 
Rather, he began to contemplate the idea that this one who was a sinful human being would dare have the audacity to hold in his filthy hands the precious body and blood of Christ. And Luther was so overcome with his unworthiness that he froze at that moment. Oh, there are other stories about Luther that indicate the extraordinary character of his of his behavior. We remember that after the Reformation was underway and <clears throat> a dispute came up between the Calvinists and the Lutherans about the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and there was every effort to reach an agreement between these two strong forces of Protestantism, and they met in a, in a very important symposium, and there they were discussing their differences. Luther insisted on the corporeal presence of the body of Christ in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and he just took his fist and began to bang on the table over and over again, hoc est corpus meum, hoc est corpus meum, like Nikita Khrushchev did in the United Nations decades ago when he took his shoe off and started pounding it on the table for attention. Luther, Luther wouldn't debate, he wouldn't discuss he just kept saying over and over again, this is my body. He's a strange fellow. They say perhaps the thing that would most indicate uh, his insanity is the apparent commitment to megalomania. I mean, how else can you explain a person being willing to defy every authority structure of this world and to stand utterly alone as a young priest against all of the authorities of the church, against the pope, against church councils, against the finest theologians in the land. Well, he went through all of these debates at Leipzig. He debated at... Uh, with with Martin Eck, he debated with uh, Cardinal Cajetan. He went and got himself in trouble with the Pope. And now, finally, the whole discussion comes to a climax where Luther is invited to the to the uh, diet, the imperial diet of Worms. And at Worms, Luther is on trial, and he is going to be asked to recant of his writings. And he's to be on trial not only before the ecclesiastical authorities, but also before the secular authorities. And he's granted safe conduct to come to this momentous occasion for his trial. And before he gets there in typical fashion, they asked him, well, what are you going to say when you get the Borms? And he said this. He said, previously, I used to speak of the Pope as the vicar of Christ. But now I'm going to say that the Pope is the adversary of Christ, the vicar of Satan. I mean, that's all kind of statements that he would make. Less than tactful and diplomatic. So the world was watching when the stage was set for the imperial diet at Worms. And Luther came into the hall. And Hollywood would have you look at it this way. That Luther marched in to the judgment hall and he stood there alone as the center of attention as the gallery, the crowds of princes of the church and princes of the state peered down at him from their lofty seats and the inquisitor stood up and read the charges and pointed to the books that were on the table next to Luther and they said, Martin Luther, will you recant of these writings? And the Hollywood version is this. 
The Luther looked up into the gallery and he saw the representatives of the of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and he saw the princes of Germany, and he saw the bishops and the representatives from the Curia in Rome, and he said, Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and act against conscience neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God help me, I can do no other. Boom! And on with the Reformation. It's not how it happened. At that moment in church history, when the question was put to Martin Luther, Martin Luther, will you recant? You know what he said? He answered the question, and nobody in the hall could hear what he said. They said, what are you saying? What are you saying? Speak up, Luther. What did you say? Will you recant of these writings? He looked at the authorities, and he said, could I have 24 hours to think it over? He didn't know if he was right. And he was granted the additional time. And he retired to his cell for private prayer and meditation. And he wrote a prayer that night, which has survived to this day. And I'd like to read a portion of that prayer to you so that you can get a feeling for the anguish of soul that Martin Luther endured the night before the final verdict. For Luther, this was a private Gethsemane. And he prayed like this, O God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up and how small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength in this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence is gone forth. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, thou, my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do, thee, I, do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldest do this by thine own mighty power. For the work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace the cause is yours, and it is righteous and everlasting. O oh Lord, help me, O oh faithful and unchangeable God. I lean not upon man. It were vain. Whatever of man is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O oh God, accomplish thine own will and forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, my stronghold. And it goes on like this. And on the morrow, when Luther returned to the hall at the Diet of Worms, 
And again, the inquisitor put the question to him. He said, Brother Martin, will you now recant of these teachings? And again, Luther hesitated for a moment. And he said, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, don't you see, I can't recant. My, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can't do anything else. God, Megalomania. Visions of grandeur, maybe. One other point. In fact, the aspect of Luther's life that really makes people think he was nuts. It goes back to his years in the monastery. It was the function and the practice of every young priest in the monastery to go through the order and the rule of the monastery to give a daily confession to his father confessor. And as a matter of routine, the other brothers would come into the confessional and they would say, Father, I have sinned. And hear my confession. They said, well, what did you do? I said, well, last night after lights out, I, I used a candle and I read an extra three chapters in the Psalms when I was supposed to. Or yesterday afternoon, I, I coveted uh, uh, Brother Henry's uh, uh, chicken leg at the lunch hall. I mean, how much trouble can you get in in a month? <laughs> These guys, these guys would give their confession, and the father confessor would say, say so many Hail Marys, do these penance, and send them back to their labors as monks. And then Luther would come to the confessional, and he would say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. It's been 24 hours since my last confession. And he would begin to recite the sins that he had committed in the past 24 hours. And it would take him not five minutes or 10 minutes, not a half an hour or an hour, but there were days after days where Luther would spend in the confessional reciting his sins of the past day, and it would take him two hours or three hours and four hours, to the point that it was driving the superiors in the monastery crazy. And they complained to him, and they said, Brother Martin, stop this preoccupation with peccadillos. If you're going to confess something, make it a real sin. <laughs> but all Luther was doing all these small little things, that there was, and they began to feel that he was gold-bricking. They said, what is it, do you like to spend your time here in the confession, or you don't like to do the tasks that are assigned you as the priest? But his confessor understood that Luther, whatever else, was earnest about this. And Luther revealed later that he would come out of the confessional after a three or four hour marathon and he would hear the words of the priest saying, 
your sins are forgiven, and he would feel lighthearted and, and joyous as he returned to his cell until suddenly he would remember a sin that he had committed that he forgot to confess. And all of the joy and all of the peace vanished. Now that's crazy if by modern psychiatric terms we understand that a person has normal built-in defense mechanism to defend against our own guilt affliction. We are very, very adept at guilt denial and guilt justification as human beings. And they say sometimes that there's a thin line between insanity and genius. And that those who are geniuses sometimes transverse back and forth across the line. And I suspect perhaps that's what happened with Luther. Because the thing that the psychiatrists overlook about this man is this. That before Luther ever studied theology, he had already distinguished himself with brilliance as a student of the law. And he took that sharply, acute, trained, legal mind, and he applied it to the law of God. And then he would look at the law of God and its demands, the fullness of the demands of perfection, and he would analyze himself in light of the holy law of God, and he couldn't stand the result. He kept evaluating himself, not by comparing himself to other human beings, but by looking at the standard of the character of God, the righteousness of God. And he saw himself so awful in comparison to the righteousness of God that after a while he began to hate any idea of the righteousness of God. Then one night, preparing his lectures as a doctor in theology, to teach his students at the University of Wittenberg in the doctrines and the teachings of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as he was reading the first chapter and reading the commentary and reading a passage that Augustine had written centuries later, he came to Romans 1 and he read these words. For the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. And the just shall live by faith. And suddenly, the concept burst upon his mind that what this passage was teaching in Romans was that it was discussing the righteousness of God, not that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but it was describing the righteousness of, of God that God provides for you and for me graciously, freely, to anyone who puts their trust in Christ. Anyone who puts their trust in Christ receives the covering and the cloak of the righteousness of Christ. And Luther said, it broke into my mind and I realized for the first time that my justification, that my station before God is established not on the basis of my own naked righteousness, which will always fall short of the demands of God, but it rests solely and completely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which I must hold on to by trusting faith. He said, and when I understood that for the first time in my life, I understood the gospel, and I looked and beheld the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. 
to the world from that day forward, to popes and to councils, to diets and to kings, the just shall live by faith, justification by faith alone, if God is holy and I am not, is the article upon which the church stands or falls, and I negotiate it with no one. Because it's the gospel. Crazy? Ladies and gentlemen, that's crazy. I pray that God would send an army of insane people like that into this world, that the gospel may not be eclipsed, that we might understand that in the presence of a holy God, that how we who are unjust may be justified, is by the fact that God in his holiness, without negotiating his holiness, has offered us the holiness of his son as a covering for our sin, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the gospel for which Luther was prepared to die. Father, we thank you for the testimony of this madman that he understood how desperately we need a righteousness that is not our own to cover our own lack of righteousness. Father, we thank you that you have not dangled us over the pit of hell like you did to Luther. You have not driven us to the point of despair before we've been able to see the sweetness and the glory of Christ. But if that's what it takes for anyone who hears this message to embrace it, I pray, O God, that the hound of heaven may be sent to the conscience of everyone who refuses that grace until, like Luther, they are ready to Leap for joy in understanding that their righteousness is in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen. God keeps his promises. This is Ken Ham inviting you to have an encounter with God's word at the Ark Encounter. This week, we're looking at the issue of climate change. Should we be in panic? No. You see, the earth and its climate didn't evolve. It was intelligently designed by God. And it's infinitely more complicated than you might think. And that's why all the climate models just keep being, well, wrong. Also, God has promised that as long as earth endures, there'll be seasons. In other words, we're not going to destroy the climate. And we're not going to destroy the earth either. God's also promised that he's going to do that when he judges sin in the consummation. Now, this doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want to the earth. That's for tomorrow. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under, visit for free. Visit AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is... 
T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. TruthBeToldRadio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. That's TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Bullying has been around since the beginning of time. Nowadays, experts call it dominance behavior. The bully tries to overpower and dominate those who are weaker. When we understand that a bully is simply someone who is trying to dominate another person, it helps us to know what to do to stop it. Bullying is just like what goes on in the animal kingdom. It really is Darwinian evolution in practice. Survival of the fittest. Darwin showed that nature was a battlefield and that everything was in competition. And this brutal battle, this war of nature, as Darwin described it, was actually a creative process. Watch now as author and speaker Brooks Gibbs, well placed student, showing us how to disarm a bully. Call me an idiot. You're an idiot. What'd you say? You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're ugly. That hurts my feelings. You call me an idiot one more time and I will windmill kick your face. Like, I care. Like, you can do anything in those clothes. All right, give her a big hand clap. She did great. Go and call me an idiot. You're an idiot. Oh, you think I'm an idiot? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I do stupid things. That's true. Yeah, you do. You always do stupid things. I know. You're so smart. You're so lucky. Yes, I am. You're awesome. Thank you. And you're not. I know. We, we established that. And I'll always be nice to you, sweetheart. <laughs> okay. No. Isn't she lucky? Thank you. You're welcome. I won. Give me a big hand clap. That was awesome. That was awesome. But it really is nothing new. It's from the pages of that old book, The World Ignores. Listen to the wisdom of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to them also. Sadly, Bullying will always be around while the world rejects Christianity and ignores the Bible. 
Get ready to ball your eyes out as I did when I saw this clip. It's the fruit of that human dominance. Make sure you stay around until the end to find out what for the the boy. It's amazing. I've just picked my son up from school, witnessed a bullying episode, rang the principal, and I want people to know, parents, educators, teachers, this is the effect that bullying has. This is what bullying does. So can you please educate your children, your families, your friends, and you wonder why kids are killing themselves? And this is the impact bullying has on a nine-year-old kid that just wants to go to school, get an education and have fun, but every single day something happens, another episode, another bullying, another taunt, another name-calling. This is the effect of bullying. This is what it's doing. And I want people to know how much it is hurting us as a family. I want people to educate their children. And I've got a son that is suicidal almost every single day. And I've got to constantly keep my eye on him because of the suicide attempt. This is what bullying does, people. Do you ever get suicidal thoughts? Yeah, sometimes. Do you ever seriously contemplate a suicide? I have in my life, yeah. Why? Unfortunate circumstances, a lot of bad decision-making on my end. Are you fearful of death? Not anymore. What happened to make you not fearful of death? I'm not really sure the particular moment, but I decided if there's any sort of God and they want to punish me for, you know, small mistakes when I was young. What sort of small mistakes when you were young? Can you be specific? Are you talking about breaking the Ten Commandments? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm sure I've broken almost all of those. But. <laughs> almost all of them? Did you murder somebody? Uh, not that I know of, no. Not that you know of? No. <laughs> you know, the Bible says if you hate someone, you commit murder in your heart. Did you know that? That's how high God's standards are. So let's go through them. Have you lied? Are you a lying thief? I was at one point, yeah. Well, everything was at one point. You had a drink of that drink at one point. It's in the past. Have you ever used God's name in vain? I have, yeah, probably did that. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? Would you substitute it for the S word to express disgust? No. Of course you wouldn't because you honor her, but you haven't honored the God that gave your mother. You've taken his holy name that godly Jews won't even speak or even write down and use it in place of the S word. Uh, I don't believe in like a Christian God, so it wouldn't, I wouldn't have that thought or reaction. I'd like to address that. Can I address that? Absolutely, yeah. Have you ever heard of the saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse? Ignorance of the law is no excuse? Yeah. Yeah, I live in the United States, so I hear that all the time. Yeah, so if you drive down the street at 80 miles an hour and the judge says what you did is broke the law, and so I didn't know what the law was, he's saying you're going to jail it. Mm-hmm. It's irrelevant. And so... Pleading ignorance of God's law and saying, I didn't even know the Lord, I don't believe in that, is not going to save you on Judgment Day. You're going to be prosecuted because you've got a conscience. The word conscience means with knowledge. Con is with science knowledge. Let's get back to the commandments. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever looked looked at a woman with lust? Between the end of the sphere and this end of the sphere, probably last time today. Yes, sex before marriage. Yes. Jordan, I'm not judging you. This is for you to judge yourself. Right. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart. And you have to face God on judgment day, whether you believe in him or not, whether you're ignorant of his law or not. If he judges you by those commandments on judgment day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Oh, 100% guilty. But I will be innocent of 
discrimination against people's sexuality. I will be innocent against discrimination of people's love for one another. I will be innocent of the right for women to choose what to do with their bodies. We're going to take that to a court of law, and you say, Judge, you're right. I robbed a bank. I shot a guard. What I did was very serious, but I want to tell you, I don't discriminate against people because of their sexuality. It's going to say, what's that got to do with your crime? The judge will say, I'm just here to judge you on your crime, not what you do or, or the good things you do. I really get you. I totally see where you're going with that. And I guess in, from my perspective, if there really is two places and the people that are waiting until marriage to have sex but hating gay people are in one spot and the people who are uh, smoking pot and, and having gay sex but making sure they're, they love one another, right, but they might do that before they get married because legally they can't in a lot of places anyway, right, I'd rather be with those people. So would I, and I'll tell you why. I don't hate gay people. I don't hate anybody. And we hear accusations that we hate gay people when we don't. I don't know any Christians that hate gay people. Hate is a sin. We love gay people, and we want to tell them the truth. And if you have committed adultery or lied or stolen or violated God's law, and that includes homosexuality, in trouble on Judgment Day, but God can forgive. He can grant everlasting life. And I know lots of homosexuals that listen to the gospel and appreciate it because the gospel means good news. Now, let me get back to what we're saying. On Judgment Day, you're going to be guilty, and we know that. Right. Would you go to heaven or hell if you're guilty? Hell, for sure. Does that concern you? No. And it horrifies me. I've just met you, but I love you. I care about you. The thought of you going to hell horrifies me. There's no love in hell. Love is of God. There's no friendship in hell, no kindness, no goodness, no pleasure. All that's from God. So let's just get back to this. Do you know what death is according to the Bible? No, not according to the Bible. It's wages. It's wages? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks for the heinous criminal, murders three girls. He says, you've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. This is what we're paying you. Sin is so serious in the eyes of a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. Your death will be proof that you've sinned against God. He's given you capital punishment. It's that serious in his eyes. Not now, lying and stealing and fornication, lust, no big deal. But to God, capital punishment. So the Catholic Church, right? all these priests, recently in the last two weeks, we found out there's so many more. One of the popes was involved. So these are people of religious stature in Christianity, right? And from the whole world, right? The only planet Earth world that we know, right? And so it's hard for, I think, a lot of people to believe. And unfortunately, and I'll leave you guys with this because my kids are going to get antsy and I want to go to the beach. Um, and I really did appreciate this, this conversation, this interview. You've got to give me one minute after I'll, this. I'll give you one minute after this, I promise. So, um, oh, thank you. Uh, you're no problem. So I believe that there are a lot of Christians, right, who are genuinely great people who just want to do nothing but hell. I believe that that is an immense amount of human beings. Unfortunately, the way that they're portrayed because of the behavior of the ones that have control to show the public what Christians are, people like our last pope, um, um, are doing really horrible things. And so that's, that's the view of Christians in a lot of, a lot of times. We use Leviticus to, to hate people, to, to commit hate crimes. You're not able to lay with another man, but historically, right, Leviticus was a series of letters written to the Levites at a certain time that they should behave, those specific people should behave a specific way at that specific time because of what was going on in the world. That's historical. Right. So you brought up a lot of good points. Let me address them. I'll be really quick because I know you've got to go. Number one, every man will give an account of himself to God. Those hypocritical Catholic priests and those hypocritical Protestant money-grabbing preachers will give an account to God as you will. So Jesus said, take the log out of your own when you try to speak out of someone else's, and it's a big speck. And the other thing, too, is tell me, what did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you know? Uh, like, what did Jesus do? 
they tell me that he died. Um, yeah, he took the punishment for our sins. We broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished before he died. Jordan, if you're in court and someone pays your speeding fines, the judge can legally let you go. He can say, someone's paid your fines, you're out of here. He can do that which is legal and right and just. Even though you're guilty, you walk. And even though you and I are guilty before God, and I'm as guilty as you are, I'm not pointing a finger. I've sinned against God. God can legally dismiss that case, take the death sentence off us, all because Jesus paid the fine on that cross in his life's blood. Then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And if you'll simply repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus for your salvation, not your goodness, God will release you from the fear of death and the power of death, and no longer will you be subject to demonic spirits that want to take your life through suicide, because you're out of that kingdom of darkness, and you'll be in the kingdom of light. So, will you please think about what we talked about today? I will. Thank you. You will? Thank you very much. Do you have a Bible at home? Um, I don't. Can I give you a book I've written? Sure. Nice to meet you. I've got something for you and your kids. Okay, how many kids do you got? Three. There's a hundred million dollars for It's actually it's the Gospel of John. Oh, awesome. It is cool, isn't yeah, it? Grandmother. Hey, grandmother, is she a Christian? Absolutely, she is. Well, you're here today because of her prayers. Thank you. Heartbreaking cries from a nine-year-old Australian boy who was bullied at school. American comedian Brad Williams, who also has dwarfism, started a GoFundMe account to send Quaden and his family to Disneyland. It raised more than $300,000. But Quaden's mother says what she's hoping for most is that Quaden's story brings awareness to all the victims of bullying and encourages others to just be kind. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, Available at livingwaters.com. If you've never seen when demons try hard to stop the gospel, you've got to see it. You can watch it right now by clicking up to the left. Good stewardship matters. This is Ken Ham, editor of the apologetic series of books, The New Answers Books. Yesterday we learned that mankind isn't going to destroy this earth. Eventually God will, in judgment. But does this mean we can just do whatever we want to the earth? No. In Genesis chapter 1, God charged mankind with dominion over the earth. They were to subdue and care for it. And that's true of us today too. All throughout scripture we see that God cares for what he's made, including the plants and animals. So we can't just do whatever we want, depleting resources with no thought of the future or destroying habitat with no regard for the creatures that live there. We're to be good stewards, having dominion for our good and for God's glory. Learn more about biblical stewardship when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again and get email insights from Ken at AnswersRadio.com. Our good and God's glory? This is Ken Ham inviting your family to visit the Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati. Biblically, we're to steward earth for our good and God's glory. But what does that mean? Well, our good means we recognize that people aren't animals. We're made in God's image. Human beings are worth far more than any other created thing. So we put people first, making decisions that allow for human flourishing, but recognizing that in a fallen world, we must watch out for wrong motives. 
God's glory means we recognize that he made everything and he owns everything. And God delights in what he's made. So we don't just destroy so we can have what we want. We preserve creation so we can continue to bring him glory. Want to dive deeper into a biblical worldview of creation stewardship? Visit our award-winning website by going to AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. I'm your host, Melissa Cantrell, and that's it for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.